Chapter 88 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 2, Twenty Years After, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Shows how with threat and pen more is affected than by the sword. D'Artagnan knew his part well. He was aware that opportunity has a forelock only for him who will take it, and he was not a man to let it go by him without seizing it. He soon arranged a prompt and certain manner of travelling by sending relays of horses to Chantilly so that he might be in Paris in five or six hours. But before setting out he reflected that for a lad of intelligence and experience he was in a singular predicament, since he was proceeding toward uncertainty and leaving certainty behind him. "'In fact,' he said, as he was about to mount and start on his dangerous mission, "'Athos for generosity is a hero of romance.' Porthos has an excellent disposition, but is easily influenced. Aramis has a hieroglyphic countenance, always illegible. What will come out of those three elements when I am no longer present to combine them? The deliverance of the cardinal, perhaps. Now, the deliverance of the cardinal would be the ruin of our hopes, and our hopes are thus far the only recompense we have for labors in comparison with which those of Hercules were pygmean. He went to find Aramis. "'You, my dear Chevalier d'Herblay,' he said, "'are the fronde incarnate. Mistrust Athos, therefore, who will not prosecute the affairs of any one, even his own. Mistrust Porthos especially, who, to please the Count, whom he regards as God on earth, will assist him in contriving Mazarin's escape. If Mazarin has the wit to weep or play the chivalric—' Aramis smiled. His smile was at once cunning and resolute. "'Fear nothing,' he said. "'I have my conditions to impose. My private ambition tends only to the profit of him who has justice on his side.' "'Good,' thought D'Artagnan. "'In this direction I am satisfied.' He pressed Aramis's hand and went in search of Porthos. "'Friend,' he said, "'you have worked so hard with me toward building up our fortune that at the moment when we are about to reap the fruits of our labors, it would be a ridiculous piece of silliness in you to allow yourself to be controlled by Aramis, whose cunning you know, a cunning which, we may say between ourselves, is not always without egotism, or by Athos, a noble and disinterested man, but blasé, who, desiring nothing further for himself, doesn't sympathize with the desires of others. What should you say if either of these two friends proposed to you to let Mazarin go? Why, I should say that we had too much trouble in taking him to let him off so easily. Bravo, Porthos, and you would be right, my friend, for in losing him you would lose your barony, which you have in your grasp, to say nothing of the fact that, were he once out of this, Mazarin would have you hanged. Do you think so? I am sure of it. Then I would kill him rather than let him go. And you would act rightly. There is no question, you understand, provided we secure our own interests, of securing those of the frondeurs who, besides, don't understand political matters as we old soldiers do. Never fear, dear friend, said Porthos. I shall see you through the window as you mount your horse. I shall follow you with my eyes as long as you are in sight. Then I shall place myself at the cardinal's door, a door with glass windows. I shall see everything, and at the least suspicious sign, 
I shall begin to exterminate. Bravo, thought D'Artagnan. On this side I think the cardinal will be well guarded. He pressed the hand of the lord of Pierrefond and went in search of Athos. My dear Athos, he said, I am going away. I have only one thing to say to you. You know Anne of Austria. The captivity of Mazarin alone guarantees my life. If you let him go, I am a dead man. I needed nothing less than that consideration, my dear D'Artagnan, to persuade myself to adopt the role of jailer. I give you my word that you will find the cardinal where you leave him. This reassures me more than all the royal signatures, thought D'Artagnan. Now that I have the word of Athos, I can set out. D'Artagnan started alone on his journey, without other escort than his sword, and with a simple passport from Mazarin to secure his admission to the queen's presence. Six hours after he left Pierrefond, he was at Saint-Germain. The disappearance of Mazarin was not as yet generally known. Anne of Austria was informed of it, and concealed her uneasiness from everyone. In the chamber of D'Artagnan and Porthos, the two soldiers had been found bound and gagged. On recovering the use of their limbs and tongues, they could, of course, tell nothing but what they knew, that they had been seized, stripped, and bound. But as to what had been done by Porthos and D'Artagnan afterward, they were as ignorant as all the inhabitants of the chateau. Banouin alone knew a little more than the others. Banouin, seeing that his master did not return, and hearing the stroke of midnight, had made an examination of the orangerie. The first door, barricaded with furniture, had aroused in him certain suspicions. But, without communicating his suspicions to anyone, he had patiently worked his way into the midst of all that confusion. Then he came to the corridor, all the doors of which he found open. So, too, was the door of Athos's chamber and that of the park. From the latter point it was easy to follow tracks on the snow. He saw that these tracks tended toward the wall. On the other side he found similar tracks, then footprints of horses, and then signs of a troop of cavalry which had moved away in the direction of Engheim. He could no longer cherish any doubt that the cardinal had been carried off by the three prisoners, since the prisoners had disappeared at the same time, and he had hastened to St. Germain to warn the queen of that disappearance. Anne had enforced the utmost secrecy, and had disclosed the event to no one except the Prince de Conde, who had sent five or six hundred horsemen into the environs of St. Germain with orders to bring in any suspicious person who was going away from Roya, in whatsoever direction it might be. Now, since D'Artagnan did not constitute a body of horsemen, since he was alone, since he was not going away from Roy, and was going toward St. Germain, no one paid any attention to him, and his journey was not obstructed in any way. On entering the courtyard of the old chateau, the first person seen by our ambassador was Maitre Banouin in person, who, standing on the threshold, awaited news of his vanished master. At the sight of D'Artagnan, who entered the courtyard on horseback, Manouin rubbed his eyes and thought he must be mistaken. But D'Artagnan made a friendly sign to him with his head, dismounted, and throwing his bridle to a lackey who was passing, he approached the valet de chambre with a smile on his lips. "'Monsieur D'Artagnan!' cried the latter, like a man who has the nightmare and talks in his sleep. "'Monsieur D'Artagnan!' "'Himself, Monsieur Banouin.' "'And why have you come here?' To bring news of Monsieur de Mazarin, the freshest news there is. What has become of him, then? He is as well as you and I. 
"'Nothing bad has happened to him, then?' "'Absolutely nothing. "'He felt the need of making a trip to the Ile de France, "'and begged us, the Comte de la Fere and Monsieur de Vallon, to accompany him. "'We were two devoted servants to refuse him a request of that sort. "'We set out last evening, and here we are.' "'Here you are.' "'His eminence had something to communicate to Her Majesty, "'something secret and private.' a mission that could be confided only to a sure man, and so has sent me to St. Germain. And therefore, my dear Monsieur Bernouin, if you wish to do what will be pleasing to your master, announce to Her Majesty that I have come, and tell her with what purpose. Whether he spoke seriously or in jest, since it was evident that under existing circumstances D'Artagnan was the only man who could relieve the Queen's uneasiness, Bernouin went without hesitation to announce to her this strange embassy and as he had foreseen, the queen gave orders to introduce Monsieur d'Artagnan at once. D'Artagnan approached the sovereign with every mark of profound respect, and having fallen on his knees, presented to her the cardinal's letter. It was, however, merely a letter of introduction. The queen read it, recognized the writing, and since there were no details in it of what had occurred, asked for particulars. D'Artagnan related everything with that simple and ingenious air which he knew how to assume on occasions, the queen, as he went on, looked at him with increasing astonishment. She could not comprehend how a man could conceive such an enterprise, and still less, how he could have the audacity to disclose it to her whose interest and almost duty it was to punish him. "'How, oh, sir!' she cried as D'Artagnan finished. "'You dare to tell me the details of your crime, to give me an account of your treason?' "'Pardon, madame, but... I think that either I have expressed myself badly, or your majesty has imperfectly understood me. There is here no question of crime or treason. Monsieur de Mazarin held us in prison, Monsieur de Vallon and myself, because we could not believe that he had sent us to England to quietly look on while they cut off the head of Charles I, brother-in-law of the late king, your husband, the consort of Madame Henrietta, your sister and your guest and because we did all that we could do to save the life of the royal martyr. We were then convinced, my friend and I, that there was some error of which we were the victims, and that an explanation was called for between his eminence and ourselves. Now that an explanation may bear fruit, it is necessary that it should be quietly conducted, far from noise and interruption. We have therefore taken away Monsieur le Cardinal to my friend's chateau, and there we have come to an understanding." Well, madame, it proved to be as we had supposed. There was a mistake. Monsieur de Mazarin had thought that we had rendered service to General Cromwell instead of King Charles, which would have been a disgrace, rebounding from us to him and from him to your majesty, a dishonor which would have tainted the royalty of your illustrious son. We were able to prove the contrary, and that proof we are ready to give to your majesty, calling in the support of it the august widow weeping in the Louvre, where your royal munificence has provided for her a home. That proof satisfied him so completely that, as a sign of satisfaction, he has sent me, as your majesty may see, to consider with you what reparation should be made to gentlemen unjustly treated and wrongfully persecuted. I listen to you. "'And I wonder at you, sir,' said the queen. "'In fact, 
i have rarely seen such excess of impudence your majesty on your side said d'artagnan is as much mistaken as to our intentions as the cardinal mazarin has always been you are in error sir answered the queen i am so little mistaken that in ten minutes you shall be arrested and in an hour i shall set off at the head of my army to release my minister i am sure your majesty will not commit such an act of imprudence first because it would be useless and would produce the most disastrous results before he could be possibly set free the cardinal would be dead and indeed so convinced is he of this that he entreated me should i find your majesty disposed to act in this way to do all i could to induce you to change your resolution well then i will content myself with arresting you madame the possibility of my arrest has been foreseen and should i not have returned by to-morrow at a certain hour the next day the cardinal will be brought to paris and delivered to the parliament it is evident sir that your position has kept you out of relation to men and affairs otherwise you would know that since we left paris monsieur le cardinal has returned thither five or six times that he has there met de beaufort de bouillon the coadjutor and d'elbeuf and that not one of them had any desire to arrest him your pardon madame i know all that and therefore my friends will conduct monsieur le cardinal neither to de beaufort nor to de bouillon nor to the coadjutor nor to d'elbeuf these gentlemen wage war on private account and in buying them up by granting them what they wished monsieur le cardinal has made a good bargain he will be delivered to the parliament members of which can of course be bought but even monsieur de mazarin is not rich enough to buy the whole body i think returned anne of austria fixing upon him a glance which in any woman's face would have expressed disdain but in a queen's spread terror to those she looked upon nay i perceive you dare to threaten the mother of your sovereign madame replied d'artagnan i threaten simply and solely because i am obliged to do so believe me madame as true a thing as it is that a heart beats in this bosom a heart devoted to you believe that you have been the idol of our lives that we have as you well know good heaven risked our lives twenty times for your majesty have you then madame no compassion for your servants who for twenty years have vegetated in obscurity without betraying in a single sigh the solemn and sacred secrets they have had the honor to share with you look at me madame at me whom you accuse of speaking loud and threatening what am i a poor officer without fortune without protection without a future unless the eye of my queen which i have sought so long rests on me for a moment look at the comte de la fere a type of nobility a flower of chivalry he has taken part against his queen or rather against her minister he has not been unreasonably exacting it seems to me look at monsieur de vallon that faithful soul that arm of steel who for twenty years has awaited the word from your lips which will make him in rank what he is in sentiment and in courage consider in short your people who love you and yet are famished who have no other wish than to bless you and who nevertheless 
no i am wrong your subjects madame will never curse you say one word to them and all will be ended peace succeed war joy tears and happiness to misfortune anne of austria looked with wonderment on the warlike countenance of d'artagnan which betrayed a singular expression of deep feeling why did you not say all this before you took action sir she said because madame it was necessary to prove to your majesty one thing of which you doubted that is that we still possess amongst us some valor and are worthy of some consideration at your hands and that valor would shrink from no undertaking according to what i see it has hesitated at nothing in the past why then should it be less daring in the future then in case of my refusal this valor should a struggle occur will even go the length of carrying me off in the midst of my court to deliver me into the hands of the fronde as you propose to deliver my minister we have not thought about it yet madame answered d'artagnan with that gascon effrontery which had in him the appearance of naivete but if we four had resolved upon it we should do it most certainly i ought muttered anne to herself by this time to remember that these men are giants alas madame exclaimed d'artagnan this proves to me that not till to-day has your majesty had a just idea of us perhaps said anne but that idea if at last i have it your majesty will do us justice in doing us justice you will no longer treat us as men of vulgar stamp you will see in me an ambassador worthy of the high interests he is authorized to discuss with his sovereign where is the treaty here it is anne of austria cast her eyes upon the treaty that d'artagnan presented to her i don't see here she said anything but general conditions the interests of the prince de conti or of the dukes de beaufort de bouillon and de beauf and of the coadjutor are herein consulted but with regard to yours we do ourselves justice madame even in assuming the high position that we have we do not think ourselves worthy to stand near such great names but you i presume have decided to assert your pretensions viva voce i believe you madame to be a great and powerful queen and that it will be unworthy of your power and greatness if you do not recompense the arms which will bring back his eminence to saint germain it is my intention so to do come let us hear you speak he who has negotiated these matters forgive me if i begin by speaking of myself but i must claim that importance which has been given to me not assumed by me he who has arranged matters for the return of the cardinal ought it appears to me in order that his reward may not be unworthy of your majesty to be made commandant of the guards an appointment something like that of captain of the musketeers 
tis the appointment monsieur de treville held you ask of me the place madame is vacant and although tis a year since monsieur de treville has left it it has not been filled but it is one of the principal military appointments in the king's household monsieur de treville was but a younger son of a simple gascon family like me madame he occupied that post for twenty years you have an answer ready for everything replied the queen and she took from her bureau a document which she filled up and signed undoubtedly madame said d'artagnan taking the document and bowing this is a noble reward but everything in the world is unstable and the man who happened to fall into disgrace with your majesty might lose his office to-morrow what more do you want asked the queen coloring as she found that she had to deal with a mind as subtle as her own a hundred thousand francs for this poor captain of musketeers to be paid whenever his services shall no longer be acceptable to your majesty anne hesitated to think of the parisians soliloquized d'artagnan offering only the other day by an edict of the parliament six hundred thousand francs to any man soever who would deliver up the cardinal to them dead or alive if alive in order to hang him if dead to deny him the rights of a christian burial come said anne tis reasonable since you only ask from a queen the sixth of what the parliament has proposed and she signed an order for a hundred thousand francs now then she said what next madame my friend du vallon is rich and has therefore nothing in the way of fortune to desire but i think i remember that there was a question between him and monsieur mazarin as to making his estate a barony nay it must have been a promise a country clown said anne of austria people will laugh let them answered d'artagnan but i am sure of one thing that those who laugh at him in his presence will never laugh a second time here goes the barony said the queen she signed a patent now there remains the chevalier or the abbe d'herblay as your majesty pleases does he wish to be a bishop no madame something easier to grant what it is that the king should deign to stand godfather to the son of madame de longueville the queen smiled monsieur de longueville is of royal blood madame said d'artagnan yes said the queen but his son his son madame must be since the husband of the son's mother is and your friend has nothing more to ask for madame de longueville no madame for i presume that the king standing godfather to him could do no less than present him with five hundred thousand francs giving his father also the government of normandy as to the government of normandy replied the queen i think i can promise but with regard to the present the cardinal is always telling me there is no more money in the royal coffers we shall search for some madame and i think we can find a little if your majesty approves we will seek for some together 
what next what next madame yes that is all haven't you then a fourth companion yes madame the comte de la fere what does he ask nothing there is in the world then one man who having the power to ask asks nothing there is the comte de la fere madame the comte de la fere is not a man what is he then the comte de la fere is a demigod has he not a son a young man a relative a nephew of who comminges spoke to me as being a brave boy and who with monsieur de chatillon brought the standards from lens he has as your majesty has said a ward who is called the vicomte de bragelonne if that young man should be appointed to a regiment what would his guardian say perhaps he would accept perhaps yes if your majesty herself should beg him to accept he must be indeed a strange man well we will reflect and perhaps we will beg him are you satisfied sir there is one thing the queen has not signed her assent to the treaty of what use to-day i will sign it to-morrow i can assure her majesty that if she does not sign to-day she will not have time to sign to-morrow consent then i beg you madame to write at the bottom of this schedule which has been drawn up by mazarin as you see i consent to ratify the treaty proposed by the parisians anne was caught she could not draw back she signed but scarcely had she done so when pride burst forth and she began to weep d'artagnan started on seeing these tears since that period of history queens have shed tears like other women the gascon shook his head these tears from royalty melted his heart madame he said kneeling look upon the unhappy man at your feet he begs you to believe that at a gesture of your majesty everything will be possible to him he has faith in himself he has faith in his friends he wishes also to have faith in his queen and in proof that he fears nothing that he counts on nothing he will restore monsieur de mazarin to your majesty without conditions behold madame here are the august signatures of your majesty's hand if you think you are right in giving them to me you shall do so but from this very moment you are free from any obligation to keep them and d'artagnan full of splendid pride and manly intrepidity placed in anne's hands in a bundle the papers that he had one by one won from her with so much difficulty there are moments for if everything is not good everything in this world is not bad in which the most rigid and the coldest soul is softened by the tears of strong emotion heart a reigning sentiment one of these momentary impulses actuated anne d'artagnan when he gave way to his own feelings which were in accordance with those of the queen had accomplished more than the most astute diplomacy could have attempted he was therefore instantly recompensed either for his address or for his sensibility whichever it might be termed you were right sir said anne i misunderstood you there are the acts signed 
i deliver them to you without compulsion go and bring me back the cardinal as soon as possible madame faltered d'artagnan tis twenty years ago i have a good memory since i had the honor behind a piece of tapestry in the hotel de ville of kissing one of those lovely hands there is the other replied the queen and that the left hand should not be less liberal than the right she drew from her finger a diamond similar to the one formerly given to him take and keep this ring in remembrance of me madame said d'artagnan rising i have only one more thing to wish which is that the next thing you ask from me shall be my life and with this conclusion a way peculiar to himself he rose and left the room i never rightly understood those men said the queen as she watched him retiring from her presence and it is now too late for in a year the king will be of age in twenty-four hours d'artagnan and porthos conducted mazarin to the queen and the one received his commission the other his patent of nobility on the same day the treaty of paris was signed and it was everywhere announced that the cardinal had shut himself up for three days in order to draw it up with the greatest care here is what each of the parties concerned gained by that treaty Monsieur de conti received d'anvilliers and having made his proofs as general he succeeded in remaining a soldier instead of being made cardinal moreover something had been said of a marriage with mazarin's niece the idea was welcomed by the prince to whom it was of little importance whom he married so long as he married someone the duc de beaufort made his entrance at court receiving ample reparation for the wrongs he had suffered and all the honor due to his rank full pardon was accorded to those who had aided in his escape he received also the office of admiral which had been held by his father the duc de vendome and an indemnity for his houses and castles demolished by the parliament of bretagne the duc de bouillon received domains of a value equal to that of his principality of sedan and the title of prince granted to him and to those belonging to his house the duc de longueville gained the government of pont de l'arche five hundred thousand francs for his wife and the honor of seeing her son held at the baptismal font by the young king and henrietta of england aramis stipulated that bazin should officiate at that ceremony and that planchet should furnish the christening sugar-plums the duc d'elbeuf obtained payment of certain sums due to his wife one hundred thousand francs for his eldest son and twenty-five thousand for each of the three others the coadjutor alone obtained nothing they promised indeed to negotiate with the pope for a cardinal's hat for him but he knew how little reliance should be placed on such promises made by the queen and mazarin quite contrary to the lot of monsieur de conti unable to be cardinal he was obliged to remain a soldier and therefore when all paris was rejoicing in the expected return of the king appointed for the next day gondy alone in the midst of the general happiness was dissatisfied he sent for the two men whom he was wont to summon when in especially bad humor those two men were the count de rochefort and the mendicant of saint eustache they came with their usual promptness and the coadjutor spent with them a part of the night end of chapter eighty eight recording by john van stan savannah georgia